Section 8 of Anthropology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Grace, Spencerport, New York. Anthropology, Book 1, by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Adolf Ernst Kroger. Section 8. Concerning the Five Senses. Sensuousness in the faculty of cognition, the faculty of representations in contemplation, comprises two parts, sense and the power of imagination. The former is the power of contemplating in the presence of the object. The latter is the power of contemplating also without that presence. But the senses are, again, subdivided into external and internal senses. Senses externus, internus. The former being those in regard to which the human body is affected by bodily things, whereas by means of the latter he is affected through his mind. It is to be observed, however, that the latter, as a mere faculty of perception, of empirical contemplation, must be distinguished from the feeling of delight and disgust, that is, from the capability of the subject to be determined through certain representations in the preservation or the renewal of the condition of those representations, which feeling might be called the inner sense, sensus interior. A representation through our senses, of which we become conscious as such, is called specially sensation, when the sensation attracts at the same time attention to the condition of the subject we may divide primarily the senses of our bodily sensation into the vital sense, sensus vagus, and the organic sense, sensus fixus. And as we meet these senses only where nerves are found, into those which affect the whole system of nerves, and those which affect those nerves only which belong to a certain member of the body, the sensations of warmth and cold, even when produced by the mind, through sudden hope or fear, for instance, belong to the vital sense. The shudder, which runs through men, at the notion of the sublime, and the shivering, wherewith nurses scare children to bed late at night, are of the latter kind. They penetrate the body as far as there is life in it. But of the organic senses, we cannot well count more nor less than five, in so far as they relate to external sensations. Three of these, however, are more objective than subjective, that is, they contribute more as empirical contemplations to the cognition of the external object than they excite the consciousness of the affected organ. But two of them are more subjective than objective. That is, our representations through them contribute more to enjoyment than to a cognition of the external object. Hence, in regard to the former, we can only come to an agreement with others. But in regard to the latter, although the same external empirical contemplation and the same external connection may take place, the mode in which the subject is affected thereby may be very different. The senses of the first class are those of touch, tactus, sight, rhesus, and hearing, auditus. Those of the second class are the sense of taste, gustus, and that of smell, olfactus, both being purely senses of organic sensation, that is, entrances prepared by nature for the animal in order to enable it to distinguish objects. Concerning the sense of touch, the sense of touch lies in the fingertips and their nerves, papillae, in order to discover by touching the outside of a solid body its particular form. 
Nature seems to have given this organ to man alone, in order that he may form a conception of the form of a body by touching it at all sides. For the feelers of the insects seem to have in view rather the discovery of the presence of an object than the discovery of its form. This sense also is the only one of immediate external perception. Hence, while being the most important and the safest to teach us, it is also the coarsest sense since the matter of the form of which we desire to become advised must be solid. We do not speak here at all of the vital sense, whether the surface of a body is soft or rough, still less whether it is warm or cold to the touch. Without this organic sense, we should not be able to form a conception of any bodily form. Hence, the two other senses of the first class must be originally related to this sense in order to make empirical knowledge at all possible. Concerning the sense of hearing. The sense of hearing is one of the senses of merely meditated perception. Through the air which surrounds us, and by means of which a distant object is made known to us, and which is put into motion by means of our organ of voice, the mouth, men can most readily and perfectly place themselves in communion of thoughts and feelings with each other, especially if the sounds which one person makes the other hear are articulated and in their proper connection constitute a language. The sense of hearing does not furnish us with a notion of the form of the object, and the sounds of the words do not present us immediately with an image of the object. But, for that very reason, and because they are nothing in themselves, at any rate, no objects, but at the utmost, only internal feelings, they are the most appropriate means of designating conceptions. And people who are born deaf, and hence must also remain dumb, i.e., without a language, can never arrive at any higher stage than an analogy of reason. But so far as the vital sense is concerned, this sense is indescribably, vividly, and variously moved, and also strengthened by music, as a regular play of the feelings of hearing, music being thus, as it were, a language of mere feelings, without any conceptions. Here the sounds of words are tones, and these are, for the ear, precisely what colors are for the sight, a communication of feelings in the distance in a space to all who move in that space, and a social enjoyment, which is not lessened by the fact that many participate in it. Concerning the sense of seeing. The sense of sight is also a sense of mediated sensation, through a moved matter called light, and which is sensible only to a certain organ, the eye. This moved matter is not, like sound, a merely undulatory motion of a fluid element which expands itself in space in every direction, but is an exudation, by means of which a point in space for the object is determined, and by means of which the universe becomes known to us in so immeasurable a degree that, especially in regard to self-luminous stars, and in comparing their distances with our standards here on earth, we get weary over the vast series of numbers, and have cause to be astonished almost more at the tender sensitiveness of our eye in beholding such weakened impressions, than at the vastness of the universe itself especially when we add to it the microscopic world, as shown, for instance, by the infusoria. The sense of sight, although not less dispensable than that of hearing, is nevertheless the noblest, since it is of all our senses the most removed from the sense of touch, as the most limited condition of our perceptions, and since it not merely contains the largest numbers of those perceptions in space, but also feels its organ the least affected, since otherwise it would not be mere seeing, and since, therefore, in this respect, it comes nearest to a pure contemplation of the immediate representation of the given object, 
without any mixture of perceptible sensation. These three external senses lead us through reflection to a recognition of a thing outside of us. But if the sensation gets so strong that the consciousness of the movement of the organ grows stronger than that of the relation to an external object, in that case external are changed into internal representations. To perceive the smoothness or roughness of a surface in touching an object is something quite different from obtaining a knowledge of the external form of a figure by that means. In the same way, if some person, for instance, speaks so loud that one's ears ache on account of it, or if someone steps suddenly out of a dark room into bright sunshine and winks his eyes, in that case the latter becomes blind for a few moments through a too strong or too sudden illumination, and the former becomes deaf through the screeching voice. That is to say, both persons, by reason of the violence of their sensuous perceptions, acquire no conception of the object. Hence, their attention is directed solely to the subjective representation, that is, the change of the organ itself. Concerning the senses of taste and smell. The senses of taste and smell are both more subjective than objective. The former is that the organs of taste, the tongue, the gums, and the throat are touched by the external object. The second in that we inhale, along with the air, the exhalations of foreign substances, though the exhaling object may be at a distance. They are closely related to each other, and a person who lacks the sense of smell has also, as a rule, only a coarse taste. We may say that both organs are affected by salts, solid and volatile, the one kind of which must be dissolved in the mouth by a fluid, while others require to be dissolved through the air, which fluid or air must penetrate the organ in order to affect it by the peculiar sensation they create. End of section 8. Recording by Scott Grace, Spencerport, New York.